You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. It's about creating human-like experiences that are improved with the capabilities that we have with technology. So making it as naturally conversational as possible. I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of Mex, and that was Jennifer Sukis, creative director at IBM Watson, who I was delighted to have as my guest on this edition of the show. Now, I met Jennifer in a slightly roundabout sort of a way. So I became involved with a conversation that she'd started on LinkedIn with a few of the folks who've been active in the MEX community over the years as speakers at the conference or facilitators of our MEX workshops. And she was asking about strategies for striking the right balance between working on day-to-day tactical design deliverables and getting people on her team enthused about long-term strategic design work. Uh, and this was within the, the teams that she's leading at IBM. So we got talking and I was able to share a few of the experiences that I've had with some of our MEX consulting clients to help with that. And as the conversation went on, I think we sort of found that we had the makings of a podcast interview. So that's what we did. And we go on to talk about not just that initial discussion, but also a whole range of things about the work that she's doing around cognitive design Uh, which is actually something that she's just been awarded her first patent for at IBM. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Jennifer's background before we get into that interview, Uh, but I also wanted to get you up to speed on what's been happening in the MEX community. So you might remember that we had the first in a new series of MEX Dining Club events back at the end of November, and that one was a breakfast in New York, and we had a, a wonderful turnout. Uh, it was a great opportunity for some of you to meet some of the people who've been guests on the podcast, uh, for me to meet some of the listeners and catch up with people who have attended things like our MEX conferences in the past. It's just a really nice, relaxed atmosphere, and some great ideas got exchanged about experience design as a whole. We've got another one coming up, and this time it's a dinner, and it's going to be in London on the 30th of January. And in the interests of bringing a little warmth and coziness to this chilly British winter of ours, we're going to be gathering around a charcoal grill at a really delightful modern Korean barbecue restaurant. So if you'd like to come along to that, just drop me a line. You can email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. I'll also put a contact link in the show notes. Let me know uh, and I can send you an invite with all the details for how to get involved. Don't forget that we also have the MEX Jobs Board. So this is the place where companies in the MEX community, you know, the kind which really care about user-centered design in digital, can post roles and reach out to talented people like you. So if you're thinking about your next move in UX, take a look at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs uh, and see what's out there. We're getting a really interesting mix of everything at the moment, from internships with some of the world's leading design agencies, uh, to some pretty senior leadership roles heading design teams at global companies. And if you're hiring, it costs £139 plus VAT post your job up there, and we'll promote it for 30 days across all of the different MEX channels that we use to reach the communities. That's the email newsletter, the journal, and of course, this podcast itself. So one other thing before we get back to my chat with Jennifer, I'm starting to think about how we might work with long-term sponsors on this podcast. So there are now over five and a half thousand listeners to the show, and that growth is really accelerating. I mean, it's more than doubled in the last six months. And most importantly of all, we know from the feedback that we're getting and who we're getting that feedback from that we're reaching some of the brightest and most influential people in the world of experience design. So I think the key with this is making it work for that community. Mex is unique, really, in the strength of the community that we've got around the podcast, the conferences, the dining club. So when we work with sponsors, we look to work with those who recognize the value in that really creative 
conversationally led approach that we can take uh, and to work with sponsors who want to build that sort of long-term relationship by engaging with that community. So if you're doing interesting things around user-centered design and strategy in the world of digital and you want to have a chat about ways you get involved as a sponsor of the show as we start to develop that program, uh, drop me a line. That email address again is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and we can talk through some ideas about how we might do that together. So let's get back to Jennifer and today's interview. Now, as well as being creative director for IBM Watson, she also teaches things like design thinking and designing for artificial intelligence at the University of Texas. Uh, She's also spent time at several highly regarded agencies like Frog Design, Substantial, Rigsby Design. And what she's working on now is, I think in some ways, the golden ticket in digital at the moment, that intersection between artificial intelligence and user-centered design. So if you're not already familiar with it, IBM Watson is the part of IBM which brings together all of Big Blue's cutting edge stuff around machine learning and big data to try and deliver cognitive experiences. So as a, for instance, developers can plug in to their cloud service for things like voice recognition, building conversational agents, visual recognition engines. There's this whole range of different Watson services which are now out there to, to use. And part of Jennifer's job is ensuring good design practice in how that's delivered, as well as working in a consulting capacity with IBM's larger clients to refine their particular implementations of it. And to my mind, it's one of the most fascinating areas of digital design at the moment. You're figuring out that right balance between dynamic adaptation driven by artificial intelligence and users' expectations of what makes a computing experience feel natural and intuitive. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. Here we go. Jennifer, welcome to the MEX podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I'm curious, whereabouts are you dialing in from? As many of the listeners to the podcast will know, most of our guests are remoting in from somewhere. Where in the world are you today? Yeah. Hi, Merrick. I'm in Austin, Texas today. Well, awesome. Thanks for um, for joining us from across the pond. Now, one of the things that I'm curious about is obviously you and I guess the initial uh, impetus feeling together for this conversation is the work that you've been doing around cognitive experience design with IBM's Watson. Um, but I-, I wanted to start by going back just a little bit to help me understand a bit more of uh, where you've come from as a, a designer. Like if you think back to 10 years ago, say, what was experience design like for you then versus the work that you're doing around cognitive experience design today? You know, it's interesting because I've been doing this for so long. I've been doing this for 20 years. I feel like I've gone through three major breaks in experience design over the course of my career. The first, making the transition from very traditional Swiss-led print and branding design into um, digital experiences. And that was a major change in how we thought about the the artifacts that we produce and how users would interact with them. Um, and for me, that was a, a huge learning point in, in my experience. But it's happened again now that we are in an era of um, being able to bring new big data and faster processing to our technologies. We now have to think about different kinds of user experience again. And I think it's... Uh, exponentially more complicated than it was making that transition from print to digital. So that's very exciting. Would you describe that then as a a fairly traditional sort of graphic design background to to get into the world of print first before then making the transition to to, to digital? (laughs) Yes, so traditional. I spent my first um, days of my career, you know, working with rapidiograph pens and cutting rubylith and doing typesetting. it was really, I, I worked at Rigsby Design for the first few years and then continued in a few um, really boutique design consultancies where my products were books and um, packaging for anthropology and Nordstrom and annual reports. So very much in the classical um, old school design world. It does make me wonder actually whether we're in some ways coming around in a bit of a circle here because yeah, if you think about 
the role of the, the physical artifact in the, the world of graphic design where you had your education and where you started your career and now some of the ways in which these new cognitive experiences are manifesting in users' lives. You know, they're often coming through a range of physical artifacts which are quite different from the sort of standard canvas-like frames that we've used to interact with digital experiences in, in recent memory. So, you know, ironically, in some ways, you get to a point where that experience of how those different physical artifacts, those different ways of delivering information and experience from the, the, the way back world of graphic design where you started actually begin to have a relevance again in understanding what, what these new experiences might mean in, in users' lives today. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I would love to hear how you're experiencing that with your own clients. But um, for me, it's been a confirmation throughout my career, challenging the question of, does that classical training remain relevant now that we're in a new medium or not? And over and over again, I keep coming back to just these two principles that I probably learned in my first year as a designer, which are good design is good design. Those initial you know, core principles and fundamentals of the craft of design and the, the good um, principles of storytelling remain so important. The challenge today is it's really easy to lose perspective on that with all the new tools and devices that we have to work with. We kind of, um, I see it often forgotten that those, those principles hold true and that the idea of designing with the end in mind still requires people, you know, designers to really be looking at things with an eye for, you know, the things that we've always critiqued against, you know, is it well balanced? Is it in the right tone? Um, does it have enough contrast? And now we're just translating that into new mediums, but to say, does a conversational AI have the right tone and balance? Well, that's the same thing because this AI is, is usually just another instance of a brand. So for me, it, it does. It holds true across all of it. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I mean, um, I think those those core principles and particularly that connection with an understanding of users' lives and, and behavior is something which runs as a strong strand through all good design work. But in practical terms, uh, there is a lot of excitement around cognitive experiences and artificial intelligence and machine learning, all of these different buzz terms, which in some ways hint at a, a similar sort of set of, of developments. And I can imagine that when you're engaging with clients in particular, that that must make it quite challenging to help people see beyond uh, the technological promise and understand some of the nuance that needs to go behind that to actually make it relevant to users' lives and make it something which is going to provide a good experience rather than just a new experience. Uh, yeah. Is that something that you come across with the, the clients that, that you're working with uh, with IBM Watson? Yeah, I think not just clients, but all of us are overwhelmed at the speed with which new technology is coming at us and trying to catch up to decide how we implement these things, what's the right strategy for that. But I think it becomes a relief when you can bring the conversation back to yes, but these are all just tools, just like Photoshop is a tool. And they do not supersede the importance of good design. And then suddenly the conversation changes and everybody remembers, oh, right, okay, that still holds true. Now, what's the strategy we're going to use to apply these tools rather than thinking, okay, we need to implement the newest thing as quickly as possible. It, it comes from a sense of uh, understanding rather than panic is kind of how I feel that change in the conversation when we talk about it. Maybe we should get into uh, a few definitions here because I, I suspect that, like myself, many of our listeners have different levels of understanding about what we're really talking about when we talk about cognitive experience design uh, and the different methods that might be used there, the different nuances one might need to, to take account of in that pursuit of an overall good design. How do you define it to yourself here yeah, when you say that you're involved in the world of cognitive experience design what, what does that really mean to you it's a really good question that's actually the first question i really was faced with when i joined ibm watson as we ourselves didn't have a good clear understanding of what we meant when we said that so i really went about trying to figure that out and what it comes down to is um cognition when we talk about it in the context of technology 
is our attempt at simulating natural human-to-human communication. But because it's now human-to-machine rather than human-to-human, there are some new features and um, nuances to that conversation that can augment and amplify how you know, the possibilities of, of what we discuss with this machine. So it, it's about creating human-like experiences that are improved with the capabilities that we have with technology. So making it as naturally conversational as possible. Yeah, that word natural, I think, is is quite an important one there. And I guess um, for many people will be the first differentiator that they notice as a user of one of these experiences is that sense that it's it's trying to be something which is perhaps more relatable. Could that be a, another word for this than uh, yeah. the, the sort of experiences they're used to where essentially they are driving the entire experience themselves? Now they're starting to interact with something which has uh, perhaps a viewpoint of its own or a way of interacting which makes you feel like there's something beyond just the instructions that you're giving it. Yeah, I, I love that point because it brings up um, something that we talk about often where, and, and this can go back to like watching the industry evolve over the course of my career. We have gone from, I would say, up until this point, transactional interactions where it's very much a Q&A. I tell the system to do something, it does it for me. Now we're talking about relational interactions and that is a completely different experience. So yeah, it's more about building relationships with the system over time than just um, interacting with the system in, in the moment. So there's obviously a lot of um, interest and brand awareness, particularly around Watson uh, for for IBM. And, you know, I'm guessing you get to see many different approaches to to how this is done and what goes towards making for a good natural seeming experience and and interface. Are there any um, which you found have particularly resonated with you? recently, you know, that you feel are, are really good examples of what it means to be you know, a, a natural cognitive experience versus those kind of transactional experiences that have come before? So this would be a good time to talk about the Alexa example that we were going to share. Um, let me, rather than starting with Watson, start with something that people are more familiar with, which is Amazon's Alexa or even Apple's Siri or Google Home. Any of these, my Alexa just turned on as I said that, so they are now listening to this. Uh, I suspect uh, Alexa's all over the world now are starting to chime in to to listening to the podcast. uh, Yes, she is. And that moment right there of not recognizing the context of a conversation is a really big um, example of how we can talk about cognitive experiences till we're blue in the face. But right now, the technology does not exist to create a truly cognitive experience. And it's not that it doesn't exist in individual iterations. We have, you know, Watson has personality insights or sentiment analysis or Watson conversation or Watson discovery, which um, you use to teach the machine what kinds of questions is someone going to ask. The challenge is bringing all of those technologies together. None of them on their own are Cognitive. Cognitive is when you have uh, the right input coming in from the world and the user and the data, and then you can perceive the context of the information that's coming in, whether it's a direct question or something related to uh, interest from the user. Then we need to understand the motivation of why the user is asking this system a question. Um, and then what kinds of what's the best potential response. So it, it weaves together a lot of different factors and all of those as a whole are what we consider a cognitive experience, but there isn't really a true example of cognitive. So to get back to Alexa, um, it, it's a fantastic example of a first pass at a conversational interface, uh, that just uses voice, but it's not a cognitive experience. It's still a transactional experience. You ask Alexa a question, she tells you, but Alexa doesn't remember what time you got home last night and tell you, hey, um, you know, you didn't get nine hours of sleep and one of your goals this year <clears throat> was to improve your health in this way. So um, I'm going to dim the lights at 8.30 so you can start to think about going to bed earlier tonight. You know, it, it requires an understanding of the human being like we understand each other. And from a technological perspective, how far are we from being able to 
get to that next level uh, in terms of a mass market consumer proposition, which had that additional level of, of cognition? You know, what do you see the time horizon being there? Are we talking six months, 12 months, five years? I'm going to hope that we start to see the surface being scratched on truly cognitive experiences in the next three to five years. Exciting times. It's going to be a, a brave new world, I think. Yeah, it can't happen fast enough, though, you know. it. Uh, I only have so many years left in my career, and I'm really excited and wanting to work on this. So the sooner, the better. Absolutely. I mean, what an exciting area to be working in. Now, you mentioned... Uh, Alexa as an example. And, and one of the things it makes me think of is that for a lot of these things, which I think m for most people these days in the mass market are representative of where we're going with smart and in inverted commas uh, assistance, almost all of them, they've chosen to give them some sort of anthropomorphized identity, uh, whether it's just the name or sometimes you're know, an actual character to, to represent them. And I'm wondering, you know, whether that for the long term is a help or a hindrance to making these uh, useful and, and relevant in people's lives. I think it's a brilliant brand and market ownership play to put these things into cool looking devices that you want to have in your home anyway, for the sole purpose of establishing Amazon or Siri or Google Home as the owner of who you trust with cognitive experiences or with AI. They're beginning to develop those relationships with consumers and that's who people are going to continue to look towards um, as these experiences develop. But it's the same as the emotional attachment we have to a physical device like our iPhone. Um, giving it a form, I think, helps to make it easier for people to see it as a its own personality, right? Now, long-term... I think these forms become much more interesting. I, you know, advances in technology with um, realistic avatars, holograms, 3D projection, these things are going to become more and more reflections of natural human experiences, but they'll be mixing in um, imagination and a sense of wonder. So ultimately, I want to have like a little pink, fluffy, floating. Um, Damon that, you know, sits on my shoulder and reminds me of things I need to do and I, and I have a relationship with. So it's an, I think we'll look back 50 years from now at the same way that we look back on, you know, the first IBM computers as just, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> giant bricks of unnecessary hardware. But it, in our minds, is making a, a really important mark in terms of what the future, who will own the future of AI. For sure. I mean, perhaps there's another level of courage which is needed there among the organizations that are working on these things, because so far, a lot of those identities, I think, have been, you know, fairly, fairly bland in some ways. You know, they've gone with the safe option uh, in terms of making it sort of a vaguely human identity, usually, um, but not so human as to veer into the danger of the uncanny valley where it's seen as being you know, a little bit human but scarily not human in some other ways but i wonder if you, know, you bring a, a new level of courage to that and like your example of the the pink fluffy demon which sits on your your shoulder you know there are lots of examples in literature in mythology of ways that humans for centuries for millennia have related to the idea of these sort of supernatural beings which in some way influence or, or assist their lives i feel like in the human imagination there's possibly scope for something which is a bit more creative than just this sort of slightly human digital assistant which sits in the the cloud and actually that people would respond to something which is uh, you know a little bit more in line with just how how powerful and creative the imagination can be yeah i think that's you know just human nature and a lot of the research that i've done and, and just and you'll find in your own personal experience, like we immediately anthropomorphize any physical object. Pet rock is a really good example. It doesn't take a lot of um, prompting to get a human to start projecting personality and emotions onto an object. So I think it can go both ways. Like we right now, we only have the capabilities to do some really rough, lame stuff, honestly. And we of course, that the fidelity of those instances is going to increase and become more beautiful and magical and imaginative. But 
I'm, I also always grapple with that question of like, how much do we really need to give the user? Is giving them the whole picture, you know, enough? Or is it actually too much? Will it be more magical for them if they are using their own imagination in mind to imagine what does Alexa look like inside of that little canister? Um, and I don't have an answer to that. I'm really curious to find out. Yeah, I suspect it will probably be rather different for different types of user. And um, for some, maybe it's more about the, the way in which that personality manifests, you know, the idea of a personality which is imbued with superpowers, say, but actually doesn't have much of a, a visual identity may appeal to one type of user. But then perhaps for others, it's more about having that very high fidelity uh, virtual reality companion that actually is seen to be physically you know present there with them in in virtual space um but i imagine that will differ from from user to user but that idea actually that that notion of of presence with the user is something which kind of interests me and i know you've published uh, an article recently in relation to uh, the patent that you have achieved where you talk a little bit about that goal of trying to achieve an experience which feels present with the user and I'm I'm really curious about you know what you mean when you talk about uh, presence in that context. You know what it means for an experience once it's starting to touch on those different areas of, of perception and, and motivation and so on that you mentioned. How those actually add up to that that greater feeling of something which is genuinely present with the user. Yeah, it's so part of what I love about this field is that we are still in the process of reverse engineering what comes most naturally to us, which is just how do we communicate with each other? We really very rarely look deeply into the components of that, but trying to mimic it through cognitive experiences is forcing us to look more deeply into what happens, Merrick, when I'm talking to you over Skype versus when I'm talking to you in person or you know, as over the course of time, as we get to know each other more deeply, how do our conversations change? And that is the expectation of cognitive experiences and AI. The way we're starting to think about planning for that um, is trying to identify what those components of cognition are, which is what that model is all about. So the different nodes within the communication model give us a framework for identifying, okay, if we're going to have a cognitive experience, we know that there are some nuances to that between humans, right? So if I am sitting in a meeting room with some of my peers and we're chatting about a project and then suddenly my boss enters the room, the content or tone of our conversation will adapt to reflect who's now just joined the conversation. And that's just one example of how a cognitive experience has to adapt really quickly on the fly. So how would a, a computer system account for that? Um, all of these, what seem like very complex interactions, really break down into very simple nodes of really bots. Um, and you have to understand the programming model behind supporting a cognitive experience to be able to wrap your head around it. So like a really um, fast run through of that is, let's take that example. If I need a system to understand that a new entity has entered the room, okay, I need one bot that um, is always checking what my location is. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And that's all that little bot is responsible for. And then it's maybe also checking in with your calendar. Um, who, what, what meeting are you in right now? Who are you talking to? What's the topic of that meeting? And what's all the data I have about that topic? Where are you in this project? And what are your goals? And it's just checking over and over. What are your goals? What are you doing right now? Then you'll have another bot that's responsible for knowing who the people around you are, right? So it'll know your roles, uh, or your role in terms of other bots that know roles for your boss. So he has his own collection of bots and your two bots are linked. And so, you know, boss, 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 he's here, he's here, he's here. So then you also have to have uh, another bot for listening. What's the conversation like? What's the conversation like? Voice recognition, who's talking, bringing all those together to then be able to, for the system to run through this cognitive model, not just once per question, 
that model has to run continuously in an instant over and over and over. So it's repeating those questions of where are you? What's what are the expectations for me? What are your goals? What are the goals of the people in the room? What are we trying to accomplish? And now when the computer actually begins interacting and becoming a part of that conversation, it has a whole data table, a matrix that it's uh, jamming against constantly to decide what's the most appropriate response. And sometimes it'll get it wrong and sometimes it'll get it right. But the element of direct and indirect feedback that that uh, system receives from the user is what helps it improve over time. So I know that's a really lengthy answer. Um, no, no, it's, but- it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it just shines a light on some of the, the complexities involved here, not least the sheer sort of computing power, which must be required to make all of those different operations run simultaneously in a way which, you know, seems instantaneous to, to the user when the, the moment comes that it's actually called upon to, to respond. But you also mentioned there about that that process of learning, which I guess is essential to any cognitive experience. You know, a big part of, of cognition is, is, is obviously learning about the world around you, learning about all of those different inputs. And these things become more effective over time. But by definition, that seems to suggest that there's always going to be a period when they are less effective, when they're at the very earliest stages of learning about the particular situation in which they're being asked to to respond. And I'm wondering what sort of challenges that presents to you as a designer to essentially help users to understand that there is that learning process going on and to stick with it, to bear with it until it gets to the point where it's learned enough to become more useful. How big a challenge is that for you? So to in order to train a system, this is we don't even fully understand how algorithms develop over time inside of a computer. But what we start with is a limited set of data that is trained by subject matter experts. And we call that limited set of data your golden rule set. That that happens when you have, um, let's say, okay, let me put this into a really um, natural context. So we all have nuances to how we learn and how we communicate. And for example, my son has ADHD. We know things about ADHD and how their minds work and good and bad ways of helping them communicate in the world around them. So if when my son is born and begins to speak, I give him his own AI um, buddy. And over initially, when we launched that relationship, that system has some base knowledge of um how ADHD affects the brain of a child at this age. And based on that knowledge, it will be trained by subject matter experts to talk in a certain way, to suggest certain activities, to monitor certain health issues. As my son interacts with that system over time, the system is getting feedback from him and from us as parents. So the indirect feedback comes from my son and how he responds to questions and information he's receiving from the system. So the system might say, hey, Bradford, um, you should, you just a reminder, you have homework tonight. Let's do five minutes now and five minutes later so that, um, you know, you don't have to focus for an extended period of time. Bradford will either respond to that system by saying, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Or no, I think I can do all of my homework at once today. Let's just do all of it. So the system then has a little bit of information that affects how it um, rates its confidence scores for Bradford's um, tolerance for extended periods of focus. Then, So that's indirect feedback. Direct feedback might be from my husband and I telling the system, Bradford is now in eighth grade. Eighth grade presents these challenges, and we want you to help him focus on uh, developing these specific skills. So we are then training the system and helping to understand how it should take a next step. So that's how a system evolves over time. But you're right. Right now, every attempt at a cognitive system is just in the very baby stages and how we there's a limited number of um, subject matter experts that are going to take the time to train these systems. It's really challenging and very expensive. We have things like Crowdflower that help to do human annotation. But at the end of the day, we need to learn how to better power systems to automate that learning process. So 
right now some of the newest research that I'm very excited about that's being done um, is about how to use data from the outside world to start um, dynamically doing subject matter expert training of golden rule data. So rather than waiting for a subject matter expert to walk into a room and sit down with a system and say, this is what car means, this is what um, Toyota means, the system is pointed towards um, data points in the world that are considered expertise points and that can dynamically scan that data and then start to make some assumptions about what golden rules it would suggest. Then we have, rather than a subject matter expert coming in and from scratch developing these golden rules, simply responding to suggestions or recommendations of golden rules. And then the next step beyond that is if we get enough confirmation of the computer's suggestions, well, then other systems don't have to do that same confirmation. They can just autonomously start to generate, ah, this is what it means to be a car. I know that because this system is 100% confident in what a car is, and this system is Toyota, and it has been given 100% confidence in its knowledge about cars. So it's also about us learning to leverage as um, a holistic community all of these different people training all this different data and then being able to share it across platforms. And that's where you're going to start to see um, what we call knowledge kits where you can buy a pre-trained package or model of data that already knows everything um, because somebody took the time to train it. And we sell these things like apps. You buy them like an app, you install it into your system, and suddenly Bradford's technology knows everything about rock climbing because he's all under rock climbing right now. And I didn't have to train the system. It just picked it up from an existing source. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I guess there's always going to be that that balance between uh, the the sort of generic data set that you can bring in to get a system up to speed very quickly and then how much it then learns subsequently from either the direct or the indirect input of the individual users who are then forming a long-term relationship with that that system. Uh, it also makes me wonder as well about you know what can be done within um, say the, the the user interface design of those sort of experiences to make that uh, direct or indirect learning process as easy as possible so that firstly the system itself learns as much as it can from those interactions and also it places that the lowest sort of cognitive load and imposition on the users themselves while they're going through that training process is that something which you're starting to explore in in your work as well about how you can you know communicate the, the most useful answers back to the system so that it can continue to learn yeah the question for designers is it, when training or when designing for cognitive experiences is always asking over and over again, wait, couldn't the system just do this on its own? So let's take tr learning, for example, the, which we have really remedial ways of doing that today when um, you get asked by a system, was this information helpful? Yes or no? On a scale of one to 10, rate it. Um, we have a lot of really interesting or boring actually ways of doing MPS scoring today. What can we, how can we use this technology to remove that workload from the user and start to make some assumptions? So that starts to bring up questions of how much um, authority we want to give these systems. We can say obviously visual recognition by uh, knowing the expression on a user's face and specifically where they are in an interaction, we may be able to, with some confidence, guess how they felt about that. The actions that they take after reading that information also help us understand how valuable or invaluable it was following their click-through patterns, um, following where they're looking on the screen. There are a lot of dynamic things we can do, but these aren't things that people are necessarily comfortable with at this time. And I think it'll take a little while for people to understand that cognitive systems are only as powerful as the people that design them. And as humans, we're just not that smart. These systems um, aren't going to be able to take over the world because the technology is just not able to do that. They need so much prompting and input from us. But until people really come to understand the the technology behind the interfaces that they're using there. I don't, I think it'll be a while before they're actually willing to turn on their cameras and allow us to help 
um, you know, make some assumptions and give them better experiences based on visual recognition or actions or emotions, um, rather than asking them to do those actions on their own. Well, and a, a pretty big challenge, I guess, for design practitioners themselves to become accustomed to what could be quite a, a new way of designing a new set of, of methods. You know, if you think about the average experienced designer today and the way they might go about, I don't know, refining the experience of, say, a financial service or, um, you know, uh, an, a productivity application. Yeah. You know, at the moment, it's a, a fairly asynchronous process where you might go through a series of iterations and if you're doing it to best practice you know an ongoing cycle of user feedback and incorporating those things into the uh, the, the long-term product roadmap but being able to nuance an experience on the fly based on what you've interpreted of the facial expression of the user over the last three or four times they've done that and have the system itself make decisions about how it might adapt the interface, be that a voice interface or a visual interface or whatever manifestation that is. Yeah, that that's a rather different approach for most experienced designers who are working in the market today to get used to. I mean, do, do you think the skills are there currently? Like when you uh, go out to hire designers for your team, are you finding that you're having to look for a particular set of skills or train people in a new way of thinking about design compared to what they've done before? Yeah, that's really challenging um, because there hasn't been much work done in exploring what are these patterns or if they're still a visual inter- uh application, what are they going to look like? What's going to happen when we know that a user doesn't like this piece of data? Does it just disappear? And then what happens to the design? Like, as always, when I'm looking to hire people on my teams, what I'm looking for is the same qualities I looked for in the beginning, really solid, both education and talent for an eye for good design and an appreciation for craft that still stands true. The next thing though, that I'm looking for is the ability to tell stories about their own work, about the world around them. And then the ability to put down everything they know and just always be asking why, um, which is just a, just a curiosity about the world and a willingness to challenge what's in front of them. So critical thinking is really important, but specifically about how interfaces are going to become dynamic, um, you know, without relying on visual recognition or audio, like a a really interesting way that I've been uh, seeing some of our developers take on that challenge, two little lines of code that are tracking how many times and how often a user clicks on a particular button in an interface. Say they click on that button three times, that button over the course of you know a month, that's not very much de- depending on how the scale is set up. And that button goes from being a primary button to a secondary button. Then let's say the user doesn't click on that button at all for the next month. That button turns into a text link. The user stops using the system for six months, comes back, and now is using that button constantly. That button becomes a large primary box. This is all dynamically driven. Now, how we as designers are going to account for this kind of dynamic flow in layout and design is going to be really challenging. I don't have a good answer to that yet, and it's going to take years for us to come up with some just understanding and and be able to track all the implications of that. I think it's one of the big macro challenges facing people working in the field of experience design is where you set the needle on that dial between experiences which uh, have that sense of, uh, I guess, reliability and solidity where the user is able to build muscle memory because they know that that's a static component of the interface versus a piece where there is a benefit to have it dynamically evolve based on, on user behavior because clearly the technology is coming which is going to allow that to happen. But there's um, perhaps a more sort of nuanced human decision to be made about exactly how much of an interface, how much of an experience it makes sense to to give over to being fully dynamic versus being something which is a a sort of static structure that the user has already become familiar with. Yeah, I think of it as like supercharged responsiveness. It'll be fun to watch how that evolves over time and to decide, you know, when when do we use it and when do we not? So yeah, I love that topic. Um, And I feel like there are some, I've seen a few 
people doing interesting work on it, particularly Amazon, who is always trying to figure out what button can we put in front of you today that you will use to buy things? And they have really been at the forefront of um, patenting and, and developing new technology and algorithms for that. So I'm excited to see what they come out with in the next year or so. Indeed, yeah. It gives a whole new meaning to that term responsive, I think. There'll be uh, yeah. plenty of conferences and books written on it, I'm sure. Um, yes, now, I'm curious about the sort of near-term future for the work that you're doing at the moment and what the sort of day-to-day -day is. Um, are there any particular sectors you're finding that the expertise that you're creating with IBM is being particularly applied to at the moment or any particular types of, of clients, you know, from more from the, the CTO office versus the CMO office, which is looking at these sort of experiences um, and, and driving demand for the, the near term? Well, right now, because it's such a buzzword, everybody wants AI in their experience and they don't really care how it happens. They just know they need to put it in there so they can advertise and really do press releases that they are now cognitive or now powered by artificial intelligence or Watson or AWS. Um, when companies decide that they want, that they have an interest in the technology. It's usually a CIO, a CTO, or some sort of technology lead manager level uh, individual that's doing research across the available services and then going back to their director and saying, I think we should invest in this. Um, I built a demo using their test case. What do you think? Here's how much it's going to cost. And that's usually how our clients end up coming to us. Um, which is, we found, you know, we've really been researching that deeply over the last year and a half, and that, that is a pretty stand, standard process. But in terms of a specific industry, it's always the industries with the most money that are going to want to do it fastest because they can make more money at it. Um, so, for example, the financial industry, super into, like, how can we use um, machine learning and cognitive technologies to start uh, making more money in various ways? Um, health, obviously, is a a huge market right now because there is so much we can do and it's something that you see immediate impact so it spreads quickly across different segments of that industry um other industries such as like you know business development i think are starting to catch up uh, companies like salesforce um, are starting to put big investments into how do we help individuals drive sales so anything that helps people make money um seems to be a big hook uh, and, and that works in any industry, whether it's, you know, the food and beverage industry, how do we make more money with these, you know, Clark bars that we make versus, you know, the education industry, how do we attract more students to our programs? Um, that's the immediate application that we're seeing. But over time, um, the application is going to become much more about these companies have now implemented this technology because of that, they are now collecting mass amounts of expert data on their market segment. The industry is going to become more about how do I leverage that data um, to make money rather than how do I extract money from my clients to make money. It's It'll be an interesting change as people start to understand the power of data. And what's the ideal moment for, for you and your team to be bought into that that conversation because I guess as you say they have an opportunity to for in-house teams to try this out themselves using the kind of toolkits that, that you guys provide but what's the, the the sort of ideal moments of the process for you to come in and for your team to be able to add something to that which then accelerates it towards becoming uh, you know a great piece of experience design for the the client there are two moments there's the um, initial point of contact where a company is just curious and wants to know what Watson can do for them. And that uh, the design group plays a role in that contact when they join those conversations and Watson and, and start to help clients understand what a cognitive experience is and how you really design for it. At the end of that experience or that workshop or that, uh, I don't know, week that we hang out with them, ideally they come out of it knowing exactly what they need to get together to start building what we've identified on their roadmap as the most valuable use of this technology and how Watson can play a role in that. That's a very customized, personalized partnership that is key to IBM's role in the enterprise marketplace. But smaller companies that don't need this full 
experience, their ideal moment to come in is once they've presented that idea to their CIO or CTO as a demo, a working demo of how they want to use Watson services, that's the moment where we they reach out to us and we give them the full um, you know rundown of you know what services we can provide and there are obviously like different levels of engagement they can subscribe to or become partners or just become um, a with Watson uh, product to help use our brand to elevate theirs so the for design it's those point of contact initial engagements with um, large companies that really want to invest in truly cognitive experiences versus companies that um, just want to implement the existing suite of applications the existing suite doesn't need a whole lot of help from design the ongoing consultancy does now, when you think a bit further out into the the future um, and in fact this i think comes back to the discussion that we got introduced through originally um this idea of you know, how you keep uh, an eye on the the long-term vision for where you go with design in relation to, to ibm watson and those sort of day-to-day deliverables that the client-facing stuff that's going on uh, how do you establish a, a balance between that, between you know giving the, the the clients the best of you know what you know to be good practice today versus working with those that have got an appetite for more of the experimental, the things which might help to push forward best practice experience design in this area, but maybe have not yet been validated or, or established? Yeah, that is how we started talking, um, and I think the feedback that you gave me on that about making research and where a product is in the design process transparent across an entire organization by using various tools um, is a really good first step. We, I think there's always going to be a challenge, though, for design-led organizations to bring together and, and just as human beings to hold in our heads, what's the future look like? What do we have today? And what are the steps we need to get there? And asking that of one design team um, is really important because it, it affects the decisions we make today by understanding where we're going to be in three years. But being able to do that on um, a continuous delivery basis where a team is uh, working both on future of state concept cars as well as the uh, iterations of their next release requires a new way of thinking about um the sequences and ceremonies that we use today in the design practice. So I don't have a crystal answer on that. I'm actually charged with working um, to develop some sort of approach to that for Watson this year. Um, But my first stab at it is about developing some new agile ceremonies that implement required um, time on a regular cadence for a team to step back at various degrees and ask, okay, twice a year, we do a major concept car review and we do that really quickly. Immediately after that, the entire group from the product manager down to the development team reorganizes their backlog based on what features we know are going to be most valuable. And that it's going to, I think the only way we're going to get that prioritized by leadership to devote the resources to this kind of future led development, taking time away from immediate delivery is by always um, having conversations that are focused around vision versus value. Yay, this is a great vision. What's it going to bring to our customers? And how quickly can we deliver that? And then the quicker plus the most value is what gets implemented in the backlog immediately and prioritized. So it's such a business process, um, kind of nerdy topic, but I, I think it's something I've seen as pose challenges like across the board in our industry and it's been a problem for years so yeah and it was kind of interesting i think the amount of uh, energy there was around that discussion i think it it picked up on linkedin um originally and i noticed that several people uh, who've been involved with the mex community in various years um chimed into to that there was uh, some contribution from franco papeshi who's been a, a speaker at mex in the past kim lennox uh, who participated as a, a facilitator at one of our mex conferences in the past and yeah everyone i think was um unified in recognizing how big a challenge this is for companies whether they 
they're working in the agency world, with they're working on this uh, in in-house teams, you know, whatever sector you're in, everyone I think is facing a similar challenge of finding that balance between being able to deliver the stuff which is immediately valuable while also keeping an eye to the future. And it strikes me that, you know, there's almost sort of two two strands to it. There's that discipline, I think, that you picked up on of actually carving out the time for practitioners to be able to spend a bit of their their resource and their um, brain power on a regular basis looking at those uh, future opportunities and understanding what is going to push the state of the art forward. But then there's also that sense of how do you adjust the day-to-day process so that you're creating a set of modular building blocks uh, on a ongoing basis, which means that when people come to have the time to look at the future and do some of those investigations, they actually have the building blocks to hand, which allow them to make use of all that stuff which is going on day to day to drive that future vision. And if you have one rather than the other, you're always going to struggle. You really need both. You need that uh, discipline to create the building blocks daily and you also need the discipline to take out the time uh, on a perhaps less frequent scale um, to do those really forward-facing future um, gazing activities as well. Yeah and you know although cognitive isn't a new factor to this or, or bringing up new issues it could be a new solution to this. I love thinking about the possibility of offloading that constant measurement of okay, how much are we progressing towards the future? How much is the future driving value back into today's product? Um, how do we prioritize the backlog? Is it optimized for users' vision and value? We could offload all of that onto a cognitive system. You could sit down at your desk every day and ask your little you know, work buddy, like, hey, what's the most valuable thing I can do today? Um, can you prioritize the backlog for me based on this vision? And then compare it if you organized it on this vision. Um, and that's just a matter of connecting it with GitHub and training it up with some values. Well, that's an enticing prospect. I think that could have true multiplier effects on the efficiency with which teams can address that sort of problem. So I'm going to be watching that space very closely. I will remain hopeful something's going to emerge from your team which solves that, Jennifer. It won't be our team. It's something I dream of, but it's not going to be a Watson product because we just build the technology that builds technologies. But hopefully one of your listeners can pick this up and deliver something soon. Absolutely. Well, it's out there now as an open call. If there's anyone in the MEX community that's going to take that on, then let us know and uh, we will be champions of it for you. Absolutely. Um, so there's one question I always like to uh, ask um, people when they've come on the, the podcast, uh, and that's uh, to do with the future. And you know, you've obviously spent um, a, a considerable career already in the world of experience design in, in various forms. But I'm always curious to know whether there's anything um, that you haven't had the chance to work on yet, which you really hope you will have the opportunity to work on in the future. That's a really interesting question. Um, because I haven't done that much with actual design of cognitive experiences because I can't yet. That's exciting. I'm really, uh, the technology I'm most stoked on is quantum. Without that, none of this happens. Um, And understanding how quantum can further power these experiences is interesting to me, but that's really more of um, a data scientist challenge than a design challenge. That's all on the back end. What sort of difference might quantum bring if that technology arrives in a mass market sense? All AI or cognitive is, is data plus fast processing. That's it. Everything else that we talk about, the apps that Watson produces, that's just um, a UI on top of that uh, information to make it usable for us. So quantum specifically is what we need to be able to process the data quickly enough that it that a system can respond in a timely, natural fashion with users. Without quantum, we will become overwhelmed by this data and it won't, it won't take off. Huge leaps have been made in quantum in the last two years. They're going to continue. That's exciting. But until quantum hits the cloud, it's not going to be available to everyone. So that makes it a really enticing reason to be at IBM because they are at the forefront of quantum development quantum cloud, quantum integration into apps. Um, 
that's fascinating. Plus the computer itself is gold and beautiful and so fun to go hang out with. So that's great. Yeah, it must be an exciting place to have access to all of that cutting edge technology and to, to be able to bring a, you know, a design perspective um, into that conversation. It's um, you know, a bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity, I imagine. Oh God, I'm such a technology groupie. I get very excited about being let into these spaces and meeting the you know development nerds that really know everything. It's exciting for me. Well, it was very good of you to take the time to come on the podcast and, and share some of that with me. It's been a big learning experience for me to get to understand a bit more about the work you're doing in cognitive experience design. Um, and I think you'll be able to hold your own with those technologists now. I understand um, you've just had your first patent granted uh, as well. So congratulations on that. And I'm sure um, you'll be able to go into those conversations now and um, have a, a good frank exchange with all of those technologists at IBM. Well, that's hopeful. Yeah, I can definitely, I can't tell them how the system works, but I can definitely always tell them what it should feel like. And that's important too. So yeah. Well, we'll make sure we link to the article which covers uh, your patent uh, and some of the background around that in the show notes. So listeners can go and check that out after the podcast. But Jennifer, thank you very much and do stay in touch and and let us know um, how it develops uh, for you at um, IBM and, and Watson, this work on cognitive experience design. Of course. Thank you so much, Merrick. It was an honor to be on the next podcast. Well, that's it for this edition. You can find those show notes that I mentioned at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And there'll be links there to more information about Jennifer and all of the different things that we talked about in today's episode. So we've got some great new shows coming up, uh, including Martin Peters, who's head of co-creation and people insights at Philips, as well as Eric Kim, uh, VP of design and co-founder at Modo Labs. The first of those new episodes is going to be out in two weeks from now. Uh, But in the meantime, um, if you enjoyed listening to this, do please have a think about who else you know Uh, who might like to find out about the MEX podcast uh, and just send them a link, share that link with them to mobileuserexperience.com so they can subscribe for themselves and join in the fun. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.